Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you, I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13 is where we're going to be this morning. I like to see everybody turning in their Bibles. It's kind of fun from this perspective. (laughs) So many of you know that my youngest son, Zachary, has special needs. Uh, He has a rare chromosome disorder that makes him severely autistic. He has epilepsy. He's nonverbal. He has severe developmental delays. And it's been a joy to see my son Zachary grow up, and it's hard to explain, but he has this kind of childlike innocence that's really hard to put into words. He loves to play with toys that make, make, make noise. He loves his Buzz Lightyear toy, he loves his Spider-Man toy, and he loves his Captain America toy. And many of you in this church have seen him grow up. It's hard to believe in May he will be 22 years old. When we first came to the church in 2005, he was a five-year-old little guy. And some of you may remember watching him in the nursery, and it's been a joy to see him grow up. And some of you in your families may have family members with disabilities. Maybe even you are here this morning, and you have a disability. And so we know it's been God's sovereign plan for us as parents of Zachary to raise a son with severe disabilities. We are so thankful God has chosen us to do that. But yet... With disabilities comes those challenges. And maybe you have a person in your family that has a disability, and maybe at times they've expressed frustration. Maybe they've expressed depression, discouragement, maybe a sense of helplessness at times. And so Don and I have a very special place in our heart for people with special needs. My wife actually teaches special ed at Ayers Elementary, and she's been doing that for many years. And so we're so thankful for all the people in our community that have helped Zachary over the years. He goes to Duffield Center, which is a day program, and it's been a little challenging the past four weeks because they've been closed down for COVID. So Zachary and I have hung out together for the past four weeks, and I've taken him along with different things. He's actually come to some funerals I've attended, and he's come to some meetings, and um, it's been fun to take him around, but I'm really hoping they open tomorrow. So, um, <clears throat> but I'm thankful for the for the people that work at Duffield Center that take care of those with disabilities. I'm thankful for the respite ladies that come into our home and watch Zachary. I'm thankful for the paras in RE1 that were with him from kindergarten all the way to when he was 21 that worked with Zachary all those years. And so we have a lot of wonderful people in our community here that work with and have a heart for special needs people with disabilities. Now why do I bring up the issue of people with disabilities? It's not just because I'm the dad of a son with special needs. In the passage of Scripture before us, we see Jesus. And Jesus has the biggest heart for those with disabilities. And so let's read together this passage of Scripture. Luke chapter 3, I mean Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 10. 
Yeah, Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 10. Everybody there? All right, here we go. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When he, Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, but do not come on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrite, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. We can't miss the fact that this takes place in the synagogue, in church, if you will, on the Sabbath. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus began his public ministry in the synagogue, if you remember. That was his first public sermon. And as was his custom, he regularly went to the synagogue, which was the local church, and he worshipped on the Sabbath day. And so much of what was done in the synagogue is really a pattern for what we do in Christian worship today. I don't know if you know that. When you went to synagogue, here's what you did. See if this sounds familiar. You would sing psalms. You would hear scripture read. You would give tithes and offerings. You would hear maybe some other uh, psalms read. And then the rabbi would, would give a sermon from the scriptures, the Old Testament. This is what happened in the synagogue. And so Luke records the very first time Jesus does his public ministry. It's in his hometown of Nazareth. He preaches a sermon. This is the very last time that Jesus goes into the synagogue. This is the last time that's ever recorded that Jesus goes into a synagogue before his death in Jerusalem. And what does he do the very last time he goes into the synagogue? The first time he goes in, he preaches a powerful message. The last time he goes in, he puts that message into practice and heals this woman. So what I want us to do is to see this passage of Scripture unfold in three main sections. Three main parts, if you will. And so, first thing we see in verses 10 through 13, we see the merciful healing. The healing itself. Jesus heals this woman. Now, I mentioned that Jesus started his ministry in the synagogue and he preached a message. I just want to go back and remind you how he started his ministry, what he preached. Luke chapter 4, 17 through 19. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
It's so significant that Jesus starts his ministry preaching this message because this would be the theme of his entire ministry. He would preach a gospel message of hope. He would go liberate people. He would heal people. He would save people. It was a message of hope and of freedom. And notice what he says there. He has come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That word oppressed means to be overwhelmed with extreme hardship. To be just overwhelmed with distress. With oppressive hardship. And Jesus has come to free those who are in bondage. And so notice how Luke tells the narrative. Verse 11, Behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Luke says, listen, I want you to notice this woman. 18 years with a disability. Now we don't know exactly what it was. Now, Luke was a doctor, and I'm sure he probably had some idea, but, but evidently it could be that her, her spine and, and, and maybe her vertebrae had fused together. We don't know, but she was bent over. Think about that. Bent over where she couldn't straighten up. And how long was this? 18 years. This woman had suffered 18 years with this severe disability. She was hunched over. And see, here's the issue. In that ancient Israelite culture, People with disabilities, and especially women with disabilities, were meant to be socially invisible. Don't show yourself in public. You don't want to be seen. You're too much of a distraction. People may point at you. And so she's probably sitting at the back of the synagogue. She probably doesn't want to draw any attention to herself. She's just come here to hear Jesus preach. But notice how Luke describes it. It's a disabling spirit there's something demonic or satanic about this disability now we need to be careful here because this is the only time luke uses this description sometimes don't ask me to explain this fully because i don't know it fully sometimes maladies infirmary infirmities disabilities can be attributed to the work of satan we think about job Job was inflicted by Satan. We think about Paul. He had a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan. So, we don't need to go beyond what the Bible says. We need to be cautious. Sometimes, not all the time, probably in most cases, disabilities and sicknesses are just disabilities and sicknesses that come from a fallen world. But in this case, in this particular situation, Luke draws our attention to something demonic going on here. She's being oppressed for 18 years by a demonic disability. All we know is that she's crushed and bent down and influenced by, a, by an evil spirit. And, and this physical reality paints a picture of a spiritual reality. What does Satan do to people before they're Christians? He wants to crush them and he wants to hold them down and he wants to corrupt them. Satan is the accuser. Satan's the liar. He tries to load our backs down with the crushing weight of sin and guilt and shame. That's what Satan wants to do to people spiritually. He wants to weigh people down with the guilt and shame of their sin. So they feel that weight. 1 Peter 5.8 Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
He's a roaring lion looking to devour people. Revelation 12.10 says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them night and day before our God. Satan's the accuser. He's the liar. He wants those without Christ to be weighed down in that dungeon cell of sin and shame and guilt. So physically what this lady is experiencing is a spiritual reality of what Satan does. But it also shows us the spiritual condition of every person before their salvation. Every single person is born spiritually in a condition where they are unable to save themselves. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. Satan's blinded eyes of unbelievers to keep them from seeing truth. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, You were dead in the trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. In our lost condition, we were following Satan, the the prince of the power of the air. Then Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, 25-26, talking to Timothy, a young pastor, a pastor needs to correct his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Every single person without Christ is captured, ensnared, enslaved, blinded by the devil. He's a lion. He's a deceiver. And so what did we need spiritually to overcome this condition of being sinners, enslaved to death and hell? And Satan. We needed the powerful compassion of Christ, did we not? We needed Christ to free us from our sin by his grace. And that's exactly what we see here. Pay careful attention to what happens. Look at verse 12. Jesus saw her when Jesus saw her. He called to her. He said to her. Jesus is the one that takes the initiative here. Jesus is the one that's moved with compassion. You don't see her in this passage of Scripture coming up to Jesus and asking him to heal her. She's probably hiding back in the, in the shadows, not wanting to be seen. And Jesus notices her, and Jesus calls her, and Jesus takes the initiative. You remember the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years a few, week, few months ago? She wanted to come up and, and just grab Jesus' garment because maybe she could be healed by grabbing his garment. This woman doesn't take ish, any initiative. Jesus seeks her out. I see you. Woman, come here. You know, that woman probably showed up to church just to hear a good sermon. I hear Jesus in town. I'm going to show up and I'll listen to him. Maybe I'll hear some good truth. She had no idea that she would show up that day and be healed immediately of her disability that she had for 18 years. Jesus saw her. Jesus took the initiative. Jesus called her. And notice what he says to her in verse 12. Woman, you are freed. You're freed from your disability. 
I don't want to go into all the, the, the Greek language here, but it's the strongest way possible that Jesus could have expressed her being free. It's basically Jesus saying, you are comprehensively, you are completely, you are instantaneously freed once and for all. Instantaneously, comprehensively, completely. He healed this woman. And that's the same thing Jesus has done to us who were spiritually disabled in our sin. Jesus healed us, saved us, freed us completely, comprehensively, and instantaneously. He saved us from sin and Satan. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Think about the spiritual picture here. This woman was bent over physically. In your sin, you were bent over spiritually, and Jesus straightened you up. And he turned you away from sin and death, and he turned you facing towards heaven and gave you eternal life so that now you're free, now you're accepted, now you are forgiven, you're transformed. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. People without Jesus are bowed down under the weight of sin, shame, guilt, Satan, death. And Jesus in his compassion comes and releases us, rescues us, makes us alive, saves us from that spiritual condition. The problem is we can't fix ourselves. We can't straighten ourselves. We can't heal ourselves. Just like this woman could not heal herself, we are totally unable to do it. We need the initiative of Jesus. Jesus needs to call to us as he did in our salvation, and say, sinner, come to me. And he needs to lay his healing hand of, of grace upon your life and bring you to life the way that he laid his hands upon this woman and brought life back to her crooked back. Jesus makes us straight. Jesus had a heart of compassion. And if you ever doubt that Jesus loves you, just look to the cross. Romans 5.8 God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this woman's healing, instantaneous healing, is a picture of what Jesus does to every sinner that can't save themselves. He heals us. He frees us. He saves us. And that's our initial salvation. But I want to remind you of something. Jesus still has compassion for you today. He still sees you today. He still shows up on a daily basis in compassion today. When you think nobody else cares about you, Jesus sees you. When you think you're all alone, Jesus is your friend. When you think life is beating you down and you can't get through, Jesus is your strength. When you suffer pain and heartache and sickness and suffering, Jesus is the healer of hearts. I love this psalm. It was read earlier as our call to worship. Psalm 146.8 The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. 
The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. This woman was literally bowed down for 18 years. But spiritually, emotionally, when you're bowed down under the weight of this life, under the sorrow, under the, uh, under the, the, the travails and pains and things that you go through when you're discouraged, what does Jesus promise to do? He promised to, up, to uphold you, to lift you, to encourage you, to, to never let go of you out of his powerful grip. He straightens you. Think of what Jesus can do for you. If he healed this woman instantly after 18 years, think of the immediate joy and forgiveness and love Jesus can bring to you. So how did the woman respond? Look at verse 13. He laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. Notice that immediately. And what does she do? She glorified God. She glorified God. She praised the Lord for being healed. We do the same thing. When Jesus saves us from our sins, the first impulse we should have is to glorify God. The shackles are gone. The sin is gone. The shame is gone. The guilt is gone. Jesus has freed me. I'm reminded of Paul's attitude towards his salvation. You know, I don't think Paul ever got over his salvation. I think Paul knew what his past was. Paul knew his past was evil, wicked. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He knew that he in no way deserved salvation. I don't think he ever got over the fact that God saved him. Listen to how Paul describes it in 1 Timothy 1, 13-17. Paul says, I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed with me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul makes up a word there. I'm the foremost. I'm the worst of sinners. But I receive mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, as the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me just say this to you. Never get over the fact that God saved you. Never get over the fact that God took you from your sin and your shame, being bent over under the power of Satan, under the grip of your sin, and he straightened you out and freed you and gave you eternal life. Paul never got over it. We should never get over it. We should be like this lady and always glorify God for freeing us from our sin. So that's the first thing we see here. The mercy in the healing, the compassion of Jesus, the initiative of Jesus to see this woman. She's probably hiding out, not wanting anybody to see her, and Jesus takes the initiative and says, on this day, I'm going to heal her on the Sabbath. Okay, let's look at the, the second thing we see. Sadly, the second thing we see is the legalistic response. In verses 14 through 16. Now, if you had been there at church that day, and you've known this lady, and she's been bent over for 18 years, and all of a sudden, Jesus heals her, what would be your response? Praise the Lord. 
Let's gather around her. Let's, let's sing some hallelujahs. Let's just rejoice that a woman has been healed today. Wouldn't your natural impulse be, let's just praise the Lord. The ruler of the synagogue gets ticked. Read it. Verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus healed her on the Sabbath. The ruler of the synagogue is seething with anger. And he's also a coward because he doesn't address Jesus, he addresses the crowd. Basically, he says to the crowd, listen, you can come here any day you want to get healed, just don't come here on Sabbath. That's not the day we do work. You're breaking the Sabbath. Now, you may ask yourself, well, who was the ruler of the synagogue? Who is this guy? The ruler of the synagogue was one of the elders in the village who had the responsibility of planning the worship service, picking the songs, picking the scriptures, and probably arranging the preachers or being the main preacher himself. In other words, the ruler of the synagogue is like the lead pastor of the church. And what's the lead pastor's responsibility in the synagogue? To, to, to take care of the worship, but also to care for the people. To care for the people. This ruler, this quote-unquote pastor, instead of showing a heart of compassion for this poor woman and submitting to the leadership of Jesus, he gets mad. He gets legalistic. He gets self-righteous. He gets judgmental. Verse 14, the ruler of the synagogue, indignant. That means he's upset, he's angry. Because Jesus had delivered, had healed her on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. Then look at verse 15. Then the Lord answered him. Notice the shift in words. Earlier in this passage, he's called Jesus. Now it's the Lord. Paul makes that shift not so subtly to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus is the Lord and Jesus is going to speak because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Lord of the Sabbath looks at the ruler of the synagogue and says, you're a hypocrite. You are a hypocrite. He rebukes him. If the ruler of the synagogue knew his Old Testament the way he should have, he probably should have been reading Micah 6.8. What does Micah 6.8 say? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. To love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This synagogue ruler is walking in anger and pride and self-righteousness and judgmental legalism. He doesn't have kindness. He's not humble. It's the worst of all sins, self-righteous legalism. Now, the Pharisees added a lot of different laws on top of the Ten Commandments. Now, we know the Fourth Commandment says don't break the Sabbath. But they added about 39 other laws on top of the Sabbath to make sure you didn't break the Sabbath. And, and so Jesus tells them, here's one of your laws. Are you one of your man-made laws? Look at verse 15. You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? In other words, they had a law that said you, you don't want your animals to go thirsty on Sabbath, so you can untie them from their post and lead them along with a rein or with a leash to water. You can feed your animals on Sabbath. 
What's Jesus saying? You care more about your animals than this precious woman who's made in the image of God who's been suffering for 18 years. Talk about a lack of compassion. My cows didn't get to drink today. I better take them to get water on Sabbath. A woman after 18 years gets healed and you get angry? And and this ruler is basically at the height of arrogance. Really, it's kind of the height of arrogance. He's, He's got the gall to say to the people, Come back tomorrow and get healed. Don't, don't come today. You just come back tomorrow. You can come any day, but don't come today to get healed. Now, let me just ask you a question. Did the synagogue ruler have the power to heal her if she came back? No. He's putting her down. He's manipulating her, and he's trying to control Jesus at the same time. Oh, come back tomorrow, and Jesus will heal you. And Jesus says, well, who's in charge here? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and I'm going to heal her today. Look at verse 16. Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Ought not this woman be healed? In other words, in the original language, it's it's almost like Jesus is saying, it's a divine imperative that she gets healed today. It's on God's sovereign timetable, not tomorrow, not yesterday, but today in this synagogue, on this Sabbath day, she's going to get healed because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath and I'm doing it. Ought not this woman. It's a divine imperative. It's God's sovereign timetable because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and Jesus is going to do it whenever he wants to do it. He's not going to be controlled by a ruler of a synagogue. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil... For the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus says, today I'm destroying the works of the devil. I'm healing this woman. And today's the day I'm going to do it. And nobody's going to stop me. Because it's on God's sovereign timetable. This woman for 18 years has suffered. She's going to be saved today. And I don't care if it's the Sabbath because I want to save her. I want to heal her. I'm going to destroy the works of the devil. I'm going to heal her today. New Testament scholar Robert Stein makes this insight. He says this. If bound animals were led to water on the Sabbath, how much more should this woman, bound by Satan, have been allowed to experience the refreshment of healing? Now, we don't want to admit this, but sometimes we're like the synagogue ruler, aren't we? We've got our man-made rules that we don't want people to mess with. We like to be legalistic and judgmental, and make excuses for ourselves. We aren't as compassionate as we should be. We're self-entitled. We're selfish. We're egotistical. We want things to revolve around us. We may see people with disabilities like this synagogue ruler and think that they're a nuisance, or they're a problem, or they're uncomfortable. Now, there's a lot of ways that we can ex- make excuses for breaking the Sabbath, but I want to just ask you this, and, and, I'm not, and, and I need to hear me very carefully here. I am not trying to put a guilt trip on you about from what I'm about to say because I am a father of a special needs child. I've been very careful over the 17 years I've been here not to talk a lot about people with disabilities and kind of make it a drumbeat. So this is not something I talk about a lot. But let me just ask you a question. How do you treat people with disabilities or special needs, especially in the life of a church. 
Maybe you've had this attitude, and you would never say it out loud, but maybe you have this attitude. Maybe you've thought to yourself, well, that's just not my gifting. I'm not gifted to work with special needs people. I don't have the skills to work with special needs people. It's just not my, it's not my gifting. Or maybe you've said something like this, well, that's not really my priority. I've got other ministries. I've got other things that God's called me to do. So if I take time to deal with special needs people or people with disabilities, it'll take me away from what God's really called me to do. So it's not really my priority. Sadly, and this has happened to Don and me over the years, some well-meaning Christians have said things like, it's not God's will for your child to be born with a disability. Okay, what do we do with that? He's born. He's here. Did God make a mistake? Some people may think that maybe that person deserves it. Maybe they're, like we talked about last week, maybe it's karma. What goes around comes around. They did something bad early in their life, and they're dealing with it. Or perhaps you've thought, somebody else will do it. Don't we have a ministry for special needs people? Somebody else will do it. Don't we have workers for that? Now, I'm not saying that you make disabilities and people with special needs your highest priority. I understand that. I'm not saying that you need to stop doing ministry or you need to spend an inordinate amount of time. But what I'm asking you is I'm challenging you that if you have a heart, a lot of people may have a heart for people with disabilities. It's one thing to say my heart goes out to you. It's another thing to actually do something about it. How often have you said my heart goes out to you and then you do nothing about it? Well, that's not really true love. True love is actually put into action where yes, your heart goes out, but it's got to be backed up in some action. And, and, and Pastor Andrew read this earlier today, but 1 John 3, 17 through 18. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth whether it's people with special needs, whether it's anybody you see, it's very easy to say things like, my heart goes out to you. My heart goes out to those type of people. My heart goes out to you. Well, that's great. But how about some time? How about your hands? How about your feet? How about doing something practical, concrete, tangible to actually help, to actually serve, to actually encourage? So the first thing we've seen in this passage of Scripture is the actual healing itself. This miraculous, wonderful, glorious healing of this woman. And then the second thing we see is that the synagogue ruler is legalistic. He's judgmental. He's, he's got the really terrible attitude. And Jesus rebukes him for it. But then the third thing we see, we see the joyful worship. Look at verse 17. And he's, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So Jesus puts them in their place. They're silenced. They're shamed. They can't open their mouths. They know that they're wrong. But notice what it says. All the people rejoiced. There was tremendous joy, celebration, fellowship. Now let me remind you, where is this taking place? Is this taking place out on the hillsides? No, it's taking place in church. It's taking place in the synagogue. It's taking place when God's people are gathering for worship. For us, we're no longer bound by the Sabbath. 
because Jesus rose again on a Sunday morning. It's been switched to the Lord's Day. That's why we worship on Sunday. But for us, it would be like gather worship on a Sunday morning. So what should Sunday morning be? It should be a day of proclaiming the mercy, the freedom, the forgiveness, the love that Jesus has for sinners. But it also should be a day for doing works of mercy in his name. When Jesus started his ministry in the synagogue, he preached a message. I've come to set the captives free. I've come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I've come to preach the good news. And so, yes, Sunday mornings is a time for preaching. And people need to come here and hear the good news of the gospel, that Jesus can save them from their sins. He can save you from their sins. He can forgive you. He can free you. He's come to, to set you free from sin and Satan and death. We need to hear that week in and week out. It needs to be preached. But let me remind you that Jesus not just preaches here on Sunday or Saturday, on the Sabbath. He does an act of mercy. He does an act of mercy to a person with a disability. Sunday is actually also a day for doing acts of mercy in Jesus' name. Not just coming and hearing a sermon, but actually doing acts of mercy. Sunday is a day of comforting those who are grieving. There may be some people that have come into this place today that are grieving, and they need to be comforted. Sunday is a day for visiting the sick, and maybe going to a nursing home, and maybe going to a shut-in. Sunday is a day for befriending the friendless. There may be somebody that walked in this place today that didn't, doesn't have a friend. They came into this place today just because maybe God called them and, and maybe they're looking for fellowship. Sunday is a day to befriend the friendless. Sunday is also a day for feeding the homeless. Sunday is a day for bringing disabled people to church and loving those who have special needs. And Sunday is a day for seeing someone with a need and not just saying my heart goes out to you or I'll pray for you, but actually meeting the need. You're not breaking the Sabbath by doing acts of mercy on a Sunday. Jesus did it. You see, we may not have the power to heal people like Jesus did. But we can be agents of grace and mercy and healing to those around us. We can share his love. We can share his mercy. We can be agents of compassion. We can, we can bring spiritual healing to those that need it through our acts of mercy. You know, sadly, and I've seen this over the years, many people come to Sunday morning worship or they come to church and they have this attitude. You may not say this out loud, but maybe you have this attitude. What am I going to get out of this? How's this church going to benefit me? How's this church going to serve me? What am I going to get out of it? How's this church going to meet my needs? Instead, you should come on Sundays with this attitude. Not how is God going to meet my needs, but God, how are you leading me to meet the needs of those around me? God, how am I going to be a servant today? How am I going to encourage some? How am I going to be a minister of mercy and compassion and, com and encouragement to those around me? How can I serve instead of be served? We often come with the consumeristic mentality. What does church have for me? They didn't talk to me. They didn't benefit me. It didn't speak to me. It's all about me. No, when you come to church, your first thought should be the Lord, obviously, 
But maybe your first act would be, how is God going to use me today to minister to those around me? How am I going to be an agent of healing? Now, what can we learn from this woman? Well, she made attending worship a priority. I don't think she was there to be healed. Now, I don't know. I think she just came to listen to a sermon because she didn't come up to Jesus and ask him to heal her. Jesus sought her out. He looked at her. He called her. He brought her up, and he took the initiative to heal her. Even with an extreme disability, she made it a priority to be in church. And notice what Jesus calls her. Look at verse 16. He calls her a daughter of Abraham, a faithful Israelite, a true believer. Listen to the wisdom of J.C. Ryle. He says this, Let us never forget that our feelings about Sundays are a sure test of the state of our souls. The man who can find no pleasure in giving God one day in a week is manifestly unfit for heaven. Heaven itself is nothing but an eternal Sabbath. If we cannot enjoy a few hours in God's service once a week in this world, it is plain that we would not enjoy an eternity in a service in the world to come. Would you make Sunday a top priority in your life? Not just to come and hear preaching and come and sing and come and be part of worship, but come and see Sunday as a day to minister, to serve, to encourage, and especially to the least of these. You know, Don and I often talk about people with disabilities are kind of the least of these in our culture. Every group has advocates. Every group has people that are advocating for them. But those with disabilities are the least of these. And so may we be a church that demonstrates mercy and compassion and the priorities of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, it's a time to remember the mercy He showed us. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're remembering the mercy of the cross. And as we think about the mercy that God showed us through Jesus, that's a motivation for us to show mercy towards others. We love because he first loved us. Jesus is the Lord who frees. And if you're here today, my prayer is that through Jesus you can be freed. Freed from your sin, freed from your shame, freed from your guilt from Jesus Christ alone. And that if you're here today and you have experienced that freedom, you can in turn show that freedom, show that mercy, show that compassion to others by serving them and giving to others the mercy that Christ gave to you. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we go into a time of preparation to take the Lord's Supper. Would you just spend just a few moments in silent prayer Maybe letting these words sink in, spending time praying, spending time thinking, reflecting, whatever you need to do to get your heart prepared. As you've heard from the Lord and as now we celebrate the Lord's Supper, just spend a few moments in silent prayer. Jesus, I'm so thankful that this is in Luke, that we can see your compassion and your love for a woman that I'm sure was in extreme pain the shame, the embarrassment, the, the frustration, even the despair she had for 18 years. 
and you instantaneously healed her because you had compassion. And Lord, you've done that to us through salvation. You've healed us, you've forgiven us, you've saved us. And Lord, help us not be like the synagogue ruler that gets upset when we see people around us that have needs that inconvenience us or maybe challenge us. Lord, help us to give compassion and mercy to those that you've placed in our paths. And Lord, especially on Sundays. How how different a place it would be here, Lord, if we came in here thinking about not is this going to serve me, but how am I going to serve others? Are my eyes towards others? Am Am I looking out for those I can encourage? And so, Lord, I pray that as, if anybody's come into this place today and, and they, they just have a major need in their life, a major burden, they feel weighed down, they feel pressured, maybe there's some anxiety, that, Lord, today would be the day that they just have hope, they have encouragement, they have that release, that freedom that comes only from you, Jesus. As we go into our time of taking the Lord's Supper, just help us to have joyful hearts like these people did when they saw This woman healed. Lord, help us to have joy because you've healed us, you've freed us. And help us to celebrate the Lord's Supper with joy and thankfulness for your mercy. So help us to be the people you've called us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.